Hello everyone, it's Carmen Tang and you're on the Another Startup Story podcast. Uh, I'm really excited you've joined us today. We'll be talking business, we're talking creativity, uh, we're talking biohacking and most importantly we're talking to really inspiring individuals that can share their insights and tips to make your business just a bit better. So on today's episode, we are talking to the Dynamic Duo, Fiona Shaw and Andrew Beatty, aka the co-founders of Ethos Magazine. So for those of you who don't know Ethos Magazine, it's really for people who want to embrace new and innovative ways of doing business. So they very much believe that business can be a force for good. Um, and the ma magazine aims to champion and highlight those who are really changing the world through their ethical aims and innovative ideas. So they predominantly write about regional, national and international social enterprises um, and they look into really interesting businesses and the sector's success stories. Um, the print is available quarterly um, as both print and digital edition and is read in over 15 countries. And so today we'll be covering a bit more about, you know, the debate of whether print is dead and kind of looking into more sustainable brands and what different revenue streams um, they've kind of developed and based their business model on for ethos. Um, so we're really excited to have them uh, on the podcast today. Uh, so please welcome Fiona and Andrew. How are you guys oh. doing? Good to catch up with you. So amongst all the madness, how have both your last two weeks been? Well, the last two weeks in particular have been great because Fiona and I have taken our first holidays of the year. Oh, wow. In, 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 in recent weeks. You, you timed that question perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> you did say you were going on holiday. Actually, no, Fiona, you went on holiday first, then Andrew, you went away, right? Yeah. But no, we, um, we had a big project. We've been working with a good business festival. And that was at the beginning of October. Yeah. And so once that was finished, I took a bit of time off and then came back and then Andrew took a bit of time off. Yeah. So we've had a chance to, to breathe and relax and, and refresh a bit. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so personally, the last two weeks have been very good. Um, I think from a um, general out there in the world, it's been as chaotic as, mm. as ever. Mm. Um, obviously, we've been through two styles of lockdown in the past um, short while but that's been that's been interesting yeah and so you guys are speaking from liverpool in the uk at the moment right mm -hmm. nice so tell us um for our listeners how you guys both know each other and you know consequently how the idea for ethos was birthed so we were introduced by a mutual um colleague of ours who we were both new from work about six or seven years ago now i think yep. Um, so I've always, um, I'm a journalist by um, training and I've always worked in publishing, non-fiction publishing um, and I've run my own business in, in that for donkey's years now, mm. a, lo a long, long time. Um, and I, and then Andrew was working on a specific project, which was a newspaper. Mm. And then this, this colleague, David of ours, sort of put the two of us together and said, oh, Andrew, you want to do this, speak to Fiona. Um, and that was kind of the start of things. It wasn't the start of ethos. It was the start of the thing before. Yeah. Um, so we had a newspaper called the City Tribune that we'd done specifically for a business festival. Because um, mm -hmm. I think the thing that both of us have always done is told business stories. Yep. We've just put it in slightly different ways. So that was that was how we met originally. Yeah. Um, and then it's gone on from there. Yeah. And and I think he thus came between 2000, end of 2014. We were introduced. Well, we knew a colleague uh, in. Liverpool, who ran a uh, social enterprise network, and he asked us to do a. And you, he'd seen the City Tribune and asked us to do a, a version of that for the social enterprise right, world right. In, in Liverpool, which was we thought was half a good idea. Um, and so we, we what we eventually developed was something that um, something that we thought would better serve the social enterprise network in Liverpool, which was to create a um, a kind of a paid for magazine or something that would eventually become a paid for magazine that would allow us to go out <clears throat> all over the world find really great stories ideas people connections and kind of bring them to bear in in liverpool and obviously by creating a magazine which was paid for so it was a that would effectively pay for us to be able to do <clears throat> to do that um essentially i mean the magazine launched some while 
so much like, lenses to see because yeah. we, we were five this, this summer. Yeah. But I think the thing is, from our point of view, we didn't want to just talk to the social enterprise yeah. world. You know, I don't really see why that should sit separate to other parts of life and, and business. No. Um, because these stories are kind of bound up in everything that we all do every day. Yeah. Um, so we just wanted to kind of broaden out the idea from there, and that's yeah. what became Ethos. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, on that line, I think, I think the reason we didn't want to do that is because actually, you know, the a friend of ours has got a great quote that kind of sectors aware movements go to die, and you know, the the, the social enterprise world essentially became, it became that it became kind of you know. A, a, you had to register as a community interest company to be perceived as a social enterprise. And for us, doing good as business goes extends much beyond mm. that. There are, there, are lot, there are lots of businesses that just don't self-identify, where the, where the entrepreneur or the person leading it or the people within it, they wouldn't self-identify as social enterprises, but they are as social. They are as good at the, the social or the environmental or the civic side of the um, their business than than any social enterprise, and so we we purposefully took a broad a much broader approach um, to that. And as a result, I think we've um, it's I mean it's certainly richer for it, and you know, and that's certainly the way that I think the the it the I think consumers are certainly because consumers don't care, you know, like people who buy stuff that they they. they they don't care about the specific social enterprise badge. They care about the story of businesses doing doing good. They don't care what legal thought of business has. They they um, they they're much more interested in in the story. Um, so you guys are kind of helping the the social enterprise to tell their own you know story in a way, um, and to kind of give them a different perspective on how they see themselves. I think it's. It, it is that, but I think it's it's kind of more than that to some extent. Um, I mean, I started as a journalist in the late 90s, and it was that sort of, it was really sort of an aggressive, quite macho <laughs> business culture at the time. You know, it was all that sort of apprentice stuff, and it's about yeah. money, hearing, yeah. and all of those sorts of things. And like, as a, you know, it was my first job as I left university, and I found that really hard as a, a young woman. I mean, I, you know, I think understanding about business and how it works and how money works and profit and budgets is, you know, we should all know this. Mm -hmm. we're, we're worse off if we don't know these things and we should all know it. But, you know, business was, it had a different place. As I say, it was quite aggressive. It was quite difficult to, to kind of warm to or relate to. Mm -hmm. And so it's always frustrated me, like on a personal level, yeah. that people think that business is, is evil and greedy and, you know, yeah only do one thing and I think the fact that you know as Andrew says obviously there's a, you know a wealth of these social enterprises which do good stuff as part of what they do but then there are literally thousands millions of businesses around the world who do great stuff mm -hmm. because they work in communities and because they're innovative and because they're looking at new ideas and because they want to try something different and they bring a huge amount to our everyday lives you know it's the stuff that we wear it's the stuff that we eat um, it's the places we go to it's how we travel and all of those things are changing so quickly at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily social enterprises, but they're all things that really have a, you know, a really positive impact on the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of recognising yeah. some more of those stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I think we'll come on to that a bit later on. But I do think, especially during COVID, I've seen a huge, even just conversations I've had with pockets of people saying how they want to, they've just become a lot more conscious in the way that they're living and people are coming up with new ideas. Um, so it is very exciting to see. But to your point on the whole macho, <laughs> you know, kind of identity, I think it's just because predominantly, I mean, even now fi in finance and like even accounting and obviously banking, it's a very male-dominated industry. So it is still come across as extremely macho. But I think it's just changing that perception of, of what different career types and industries look like in society's eyes, right? You know, the world is made up, 50% of us are women. And, you know, if women don't, don't understand how money works, how to invest money, how to spend money, how to earn money, then, you know, you can never get true equality if you're always kind of slightly behind the curve in terms of those sorts of things. It's really, it's really important, you know, yeah. we should be cool, but we're not. Um, yeah, and, 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 and those businesses themselves, they, they you know, if, but, but from a leadership perspective, they miss you know, 
if you if your board is made up specifically of, of 10 white middle-aged men you know you you're missing out on the kind of the the real knowledge of how to serve half the world's population i mean it's just so yeah, yeah. totally you're just getting biased solutions basically yeah. biased ideas it's like when you have yeah literally when you have like but we even in politics you have male politicians making you know uh, regulations and forms for for females when they don't know anything about it but anyway that's another story um <laughs> looking at so i guess the big question i was asked the big debate is like you know, we look at digital print. So why did you guys decide to offer a, a print, uh, print version? I mean, for, for, for a number of reasons, I think, you know, I think both Fiona and I love, you know, Fiona's background is in publishing. We love print. I love magazines. Fiona loves magazines. I do too. We've got a big pile over here now next to me. <laughs> and, we, and we love the printed product. And there was something a bit more, you know, I think for us kind of, you know, these stories are really important, you know, on, to, to an extent. And I think kind of it creates a sense of, of, of permanence, you know, like our approach to the way we write stories isn't, we, we write them so that we don't do news. So, it, so the stories we write for a start aren't time sensitive. And, you know, the idea of kind of us working for, you know, six months or 12 months on a, on a feature that exists online and kind of, and disappears into the kind of news the new cycle online um, was was one thing that definitely didn't appeal to to us. I think kind of creating something that has a sense of permanence in, you know, getting it in print and, and getting it laid out and getting a designer and, you know, finding photography and getting it well designed. I think to an extent is what a lot of the stories, well, what the stories we write deserve to an extent from a personal perspective you know yeah, i mean there's a lovely tangible quality to having yeah. a magazine i think you know if you have time to sit down and read something whether that's on the bus or the train or, or at home mm -hmm. um you tend to well i mean we know that our brains respond to information in a different way in print as yeah. opposed to on screen but i think you know you it has a sort of a sort of a more i was gonna say luxurious quality i don't necessarily mean luxurious but i think you know, you, you do it because you want to do it at that moment in time. It's yeah. an active decision yeah. to sit down and read something. So I think there's a difference in perception between print and digital. Um, but also from a kind of a practical point of view, I think um, as a business model, doing something purely in digital is a really, really tricky thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you can see with so many of the kind of traditional media, how they're kind of struggling to turn declining print sales into something that has a digital platform but people don't expect to pay for digital content you know we we're all we take this for free everybody is assumed that, it, that it'll be free and you know paywalls don't particularly work yeah um you know you're seeing interesting stuff from people like the guardian with sort of supporter databases and, and subscriptions and, and that kind of thing but i think you know there's not really very much less work that goes into digital. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. you don't have the physical cost of, of printing it, but mm -hmm. the workload is almost the same, yeah. but it, it's, it is more difficult to monetize. Mm -hmm. um, and while we're not necessarily setting out to do it um, to create, to make a profit, we need to make sure that this kind of breaks even and that, you know, yeah. it can own costs because otherwise it's just not sustainable. Yeah. Um, so I guess, that, you know, for those reasons, and, and as Andrew said, you know, like, I'm biased because my background is in print, so I was always going to want to do that. Yeah. But um, yeah. it depends whether you're, you're doing it as a, as a business or, or, you know, it depends on your motivation, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, a big, I, I mean, a big thing for us, I mean, on that point of kind of the business sustainability of, of, of ethos as a, as a thing, so as a product for us, you know, we, one of the things we, one of the, probably the first thing we talk about when we decide stories to go in the magazine is is it sustainable so is it sustainable as a as a business and for us sustainability covers an awful lot of things but it definitely covers financial sustainability that's why we don't write about charities in right. the magazine and so for us ethos as a magazine itself needed to be financially sustainable so yeah. it needed to you know not immediately it doesn't need to make huge profits we we, we it was certainly never our intention when we set out to make ethos that it would do that 
but it definitely needs to cover its cost. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Like I said, uh, yeah, be a viable business. And I think, yeah. I guess, like, you know, you guys are in the business of sustainability and working with a lot of social enterprises. And I'm sure you will have come across a lot of social enterprises who, well, essentially making profit is not the number one goal, of course, but actually there shouldn't be shame in that kind of thing to make some kind of profit if they're doing what they love and they're helping people, you know, that the whole passion profit. Um, yeah. Passion profit people. <laughs> yeah, everybody has to make profits. You know, in reality, the thing, what you do with that profit is the important thing. And that might well just be plowing it back into the business to make sure that, you know, you can pay your yeah. team each of your you know, you can't really run a business effectively if it's not making a profit, even if that's not your primary motivation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you sort of say, right, okay, we're just going to cover exactly what we need to this year in terms, you know, it just it just doesn't work like that. No. Um, but yeah, where yeah. you decide to put that money that is the profit is kind of, yeah. is the, the crux of it, yeah. I guess, mm-hmm. as when we're looking at, you know, good and ethical business. Yeah, because it is, it, it, it is that, it, it, it's that that pays for everything else. In, 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 I mean, obviously, you can kind of you can weave in kind of sustainability and social aims and social and civic and environmental into the processes of how you run your business. But it's the profit that enables you to be able to to invest in this stuff. It, it, it all of this stuff is an, an investment. You know, if you're an existing business, being profitable so that you can invest in this stuff to be able to do that stuff is 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 crucial. It it it. No. I understand. I mean, I I, I, I don't understand the not-for-profit thing. It, you know, as, a, as a social enterprise, the kind of social and the enterprise are as one thing drives the other thing. I think, I think you can primarily not be for profit, but all businesses well, are. The thing is, it's not profit distributing. Yeah, that's I think it. it's easy to say not-for-profit, but they, people don't mean not-for-profit. Yeah. It just means that they don't distribute that profit to shareholders or, yeah. you know, they don't pay dividends or whatever. Yeah. But it still has to. It still has to make profit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a bit misleading, isn't it? The term. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's interesting. You were saying, uh, Fiona, all around about the magazines and having a physical copy because I'm quite old-fashioned in that sense. Well, I wouldn't say old-fashioned, but I just there's nothing that quite beats having like a physical magazine. And I do find my I call it like time per page. Like if the same article was in the magazine, I'd definitely spend more time doing that when I'm like chilled with a cup of tea as opposed to scrolling i think my tolerance for scrolling online is much lower so you know it's a different way a different culture and different way of absorbing the information i think i mean i know um i haven't looked at it recently but you know as i say we predominantly do kind of print non-fiction books but also we during that period you know we've done plenty of ebooks and um kindle and booksellers and, and everybody else can tell when somebody's reading an ebook how far they've read, which page they got up to. So um, I think it was last Christmas they brought out a um, a top ten of you know sort of the best selling books and then the most read books. And the differences between them is absolutely huge because there will always be those books that people buy and they probably sit on a shelf or they might read a little bit yeah. and then you know. Whereas with an ebook you can tell exactly where somebody's got up to with it. Um, and as you say, they're completely different things. You know, you might dip in and out of a print book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you might abandon it. But, it, you know, it, they're, they're very, very different. Um, and the list of books that are kind of seen as, I guess, as the sort of the big important things to read actually aren't the things that perform in terms of e-books when you can really analyse kind of how much of them people have read. Mm-hmm. Because as, as you say, you know, the, the tolerance mm-hmm. is, is really different. Um, you might sit there and read all the way through or you might stop. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's really important in terms of you know sort of how we learn things and how we take in information mm-hmm. um, and as you say you sit there with a cup of tea and you think right okay I'm going to actually I'm going to think about this now I'm going to devote a bit of time to kind of to what this is telling me yeah ring, ring tone on the phone off phone upside down so you can't see the screen yeah can't read but that's the thing, I think if you're like reading an article on your laptop or something, you're just, you know, you're fighting against Slack notifications, emails, WhatsApp, web chat and stuff. But um, I do think, you know, like you mentioned with the ebook Kindle, you can actually, you have that data on um, readers, but even from digital perspectives now. But I guess with a magazine, you, it's harder for you to know 
how long someone's spending on each page. So do you think that kind of lack of analytics, on, you know, physical analytics is a bit of a, a detail? No, I think it's, I mean, we, I think certainly more so now, you know, I think we're, we're looking for new ways to kind of, I suppose, build relationships with our, with our readers. And I think we've, we've, mm. we're now getting to a stage where I think getting that information from our readers would be, um, would be more straightforward. So we're looking for more ways to, because our readers are geographically dispersed. You know, mm. it's not like we are a, a Liverpool focus yeah and serving Liverpool audience where we could get people together and just ask them you know where we can have the kind of conversations with them so we're looking to create more formats where we can where we can pull readers and subscribers together and to be, and ask them that type of question or maybe not directly ask them that type of question but kind of through conversation with them kind of think about the things that they like I think we did a um we either did or are doing a survey yeah I mean well, we do them fairly yeah. frequently with our readers I think the thing is, you know, we try and do um, something which is kind of more than just reading what's on the page. Yeah. I mean, there will always be some advertisers who want to know, you know, how many impressions you've had and yeah. how long people spend on each page and that sort of thing. But to be honest, it's kind of not necessarily missing the point because everybody has different motivations for this. But we um, have kind of worked quite hard on sort of building relationships with readers, yeah. with putting on events as well as kind of sending out magazines with, you know, as Andrew says, asking them what they like, what they'd like to see, and having a kind of closer relationship which just goes beyond the specific data of, well, they spent an average of 97 seconds, re you know, reading something that's on the website. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've sort of tried to move it beyond that. Um, but, you know, as Andrew said, it's partly because we're not in the news game. You know, we don't do lots of stuff all of the time. You mm. know, what we do doesn't rely on volume. So we've tried to sort of, deepen the relationship rather yeah. than increase yeah. if that makes sense. And, 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 that same, and that same approach applies to the people we write about. So whereas we, um, you know, we might, spend, we might spend months working on a story or speaking to someone where we think there's a story and then the, um, a hook for a story develops out of a relationship. So I think the big, the big part of what we do is... is um, you know, we're constantly speaking to people all of the, the time. So, you know, people we're talking to at the moment or we're kind of scoping out whether a story is interesting now might not appear until the issue that comes out at the end of next year or even later than that. Oh, that's um, really interesting. So what, so how is your process for, because I'm assuming that you guys are interviewers as well, and how does that work then? Do you initially meet them? When do you, is there kind of like a process for when you decide when to publish it or you know how do you know when you want to dig more and kind of thing how does it I work i think we just decide as a group so you, you know we, we we work closely together and we meet often and we talk often about the kind of stories we come across and the things we the things we've seen out in the world and you know that can either be stuff that we've discovered it can be things that come up in conversation with people we we speak to or it can just be um it can be a number of a number of things and i think we we I think what one of the other things that the, is we try and get a balance in in the issue of the magazine. So it yeah. might be the case that actually we think actually this is a really great story, but it just doesn't fit within this issue of the, the magazine. So we'll stay with it for a little while and then, you know, and, and kind of part of the thing is it we work really hard to make sure that there's a really good geographical spread. Yeah. You know, we've got readers and subscribers all over the world, so we want to make sure that their stories are represented and that, you know their voices are mm -hmm. recognised. Um, so that can be like a, a geographical spread and, and a sector spread, you know, mm. because we don't publish a lot, then we've got to sort of, you know, make sure that each one really counts. Yeah. And obviously we can kind of supplement that with content on the website, but we know that, you know, our best content is the content that's in the magazine. Yeah. Both in terms of, you know, the sort of depth of the story and the way that it's illustrated and the photography and the design and the way it, it all sort of comes together. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a trust thing between the between the team certainly you know that we've been we've been doing this for a long mm. time now and, and we've been doing this even before we were doing it as ethos you know um and so actually if fiona or um or anyone else in our team really advocates for a for a story yeah. um i would trust that it's a good story in the first instance you know and and i think i think that's a big 
that's a big part of it because um, you know we know this world we know we both know this world really well and also we really care about it you know it you know it, and yeah. so i think when one of us kind of picks something and really advocates for it i think um we all get yeah, yeah. yeah that's exciting um just to kind of go back to you know we were talking about obviously profit and everything and when you decided to go print how was that in managing i guess like the demand and supply especially for the first issue if you remember you know did you kind of need a lot of capital up front was it difficult predicting the number of volumes you wanted to print and everything so we crowdfunded our first issue that was how we did it which enabled us to um not only kind of get an injection of cash which paid for the because the content we'd been working on anyway because we were working with that online but it was more the kind of design and production and printing side of things yeah yeah, yeah. crowdfunding enabled us to get some money in to do that um, but also to kind of make a, a fairly accurate stab at, at the amount of copies that we'd need. Because mm -hmm. um, obviously we had people buying individual copies and people who were subscribing to future issues there as well. Um, it's, it's always a really difficult thing to do. You know, it's that balance in terms of how print works and the sort of economies of scale that you get as you print more. So mm -hmm. obviously the more you print, um, the more it enables sort of you know, the numbers start to add up a bit more in terms of what people are paying and, and how it all breaks down. But obviously, you know, especially when you're printing a magazine which is concerned with responsible business and sustainability, yeah. you know, the last thing we want is to have a stack of paper sitting in the corner of the studio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the cheese that yeah. wasted and they're just sitting in that box over there. Um, <laughs> always really difficult. I mean, I think, I think we've printed 750 of our first yeah. issue. Um, I think from memory, um, but it's always a kind of, you know, are we going to take a gamble? You know, what do you think we can sell? And one of the things that we've always done is try and sort of increase the, um, the reach of readers. So we've always kind of looked at places. So we've, um, we've done some work with several co-working spaces and, you know, we've always kind of gravitated towards pe uh, places where there are numbers of people so that it helps us kind of try and better analyze what we need to do yeah. and what we need to print. Um, because it's, you know, partly it's, you know, if, if you're kind of printing something, it's kind of soul destroying to print something and think, oh, I've created this amazing thing. And then actually the really difficult thing is to market it. And so you don't want it sitting around, but also it's, you know, we've got to be really conscious of the kind of sustainability side of things too. Yeah. Um, mm. Making sure that we don't just print a stack of stuff. It, no, it's vanity then, isn't it? When yeah. you're when you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's actually a really smart idea, crowdfunding, because then you know you've got the kind of already like the, the low hanging fruit and the demand waiting for it. Which platform did you guys use just out of interest? Because I'm sure our audience, you know, are looking for ways to crowdfund. We used Indiegogo first time oh, round. Heard of them? Yeah, with yeah. the branding, I think. Yeah, yeah, I remember them. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, we were really impressed with the time at, at kind of how they of how they they worked and the and the and the, the types of things that they were. I think at the time when we did it, there was a lot of kind of tech product stuff on Kickstarter, whereas yeah. Indiegogo felt as if there was a bit more of the kind of lifestyle creative. Yeah, lifestyle kind of stuff. community oriented yeah. to some extent. Yeah, that's you know different platforms. I think have strengths in different areas. Yeah, uh, but that was one that we felt worked for us. Yeah. And yeah. it was a bit of an experiment for us, you know. I mean, the, the other thing about kind of Kickstarter, it was it was both an, ex you know, it was it gave us an opportunity to do a market and exercise. But you know, it we it was it was a real test for us. It was it was hard. It was hard going the kick the, the Indiegogo, yeah. and you know, actually, it was um, it it forced us to try a lot of things. You know, it it um, it was it was a good experience going mm -hmm. through, and it was hard. But it was, but it was really. It, it was How totally, long was the period for like the process? How from start to finish? Well, so I mean, we did a, a thirty-day crowdfunder, but in terms of the process, um, I mean, I would say it was probably between three and four months. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing is, I mean, then not so much, but I think crowdfunding was kind of seen as this sort of panacea and it was a really easy way to get some cash if you wanted you know you had a great idea that you wanted some cash for mm -hmm. i think now because sort of the barriers 
entry to crowdfunding are quite low. Everyone thinks, you know, we can all do that. But actually, there's so much competing for your attention. There's so much competing for your money. There are so many good ideas out there. Yeah. But the way to present something is really key. Yeah. Um, so we've spent quite a lot of time uh, filming and sort of building the story before we did ours. We'd spent some time in London and Birmingham, as, as well as in yeah. Liverpool, talking to some of the businesses that we talked about, filming them, some of those stories. Um, you know, making that film for the crowdfunder, yeah. refining our story and what we did, you know, working out what all of our rewards would be and, you know, how the numbers stack up with them. Um, so, it, you know, it's quite, a, you know, sort of planning all of the social media campaign around it, sort of planning the press that we needed around it. Um, and really, you know, it's, it is, a, I think it's a much bigger other business itself, launching it. <laughs> it totally is. You know, I think, I mean, the thing with Indiegogo is that you can raise, um, you take what you get kind of thing. I mean, obviously yeah. with some commission. I think Kickstarter at the time was, if you don't hit your target, you don't get any of that money at all. Really? Um, Brutal. It's, it's complete. And so you've got to be so serious about it. You've got to get all of your ducks in a row. You've got to kind of, you have really got to plan it. You know, it, it doesn't take too long on any of the platforms to see how many ideas there are, things, mm -hmm. funding that have got, you know, hardly any support or anything. Um, you know, I think, I think it, you know, as Andrew said, it was a real test for us. Yep. It's a really interesting piece of market testing. You know, yeah. it's a bit sort of, market research um it's fascinating yeah um but i think you know you do need to go into it with your eyes open and, and mm. understand yeah. the amount of work that you need to put in and you know you, you usually start with a bang and quite often you can end with a bang too because there's you know you're up against the clock but there are lulls in the middle and you've got to keep plugging away and asking everybody you know to contribute and yeah. it, it's yeah there's a lot to think about yeah, i remember <laughs> Yeah, I guess for both of you, it's good because you are co-founders that you have each other kind of support, you know, but I do, I totally agree. I think it's almost like you kind of had a bit of a beta launch in a way. I kind of see it as that, like really validating to see if your, your product is really in demand, you know. So, yeah, I guess like, so my next question is very much around, um, you know, obviously you're both writers, you're both editors. What do you think are the three key ingredients that you think make a great article or story? And, you know, you must have spoken to hundreds of businesses and all different types um, in different industri industries. Um, so it'd be really interesting to hear what your top three key ingredients are. I mean, from a so from a subject perspective so so not from a kind of the way we would approach it i mean i think the one thing that kind of you know when you're interviewing someone you're, or you're getting to know a a, a subject that we're going to write an article about the the one thing when is it is a bit of vulnerability actually you know it, it's vulnerability in the, is and, and you know it's them being particularly open about the kind of challenges and, and pitfalls and the things they've gone through. I think for me, but when when a subject or a or a, a kind of a business does that and is is really vulnerable, I, I, I typically know it's it's going to come out well as a, as a <laughs> yeah, like a sort of classic movie plot twist yeah. almost. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's hard to root for somebody who's just been brilliant all the way and been really yeah. like, oh, knew yeah. that it was going to go with a bang and hey look isn't it great you know you sort of need that kind of need the struggle <laughs> yeah. you want to kind of really root for them um you know and understand sort of why they're doing what they do and and what they've done to get there yeah um because i think it's, it's, it's one thing them fighting i mean typically with the, with the the kind of stories from this world of stuff you know they're trying to change things they're trying to fight for stuff they're you know, some, some kind of, for for Miss World. Oh, so so from the ether, from the from the oh, kind okay. of push universe of of. of oh, Miss World! I thought you said Miss World. No, no, you Yeah, no, I think from you know the, the t and you know you know sometimes that could be a big enemy. You know, uh, the green energy company. You know, mm -hmm. the oil and gas industry, but actually. What's more interesting is that is when they've been trying to do the things they've done and kind of gone through the series of knockbacks. I think that's the you know that's the 
that's the point at which you really start rooting for, for someone, I think, as you know, as a, as a, or from my perspective, certainly, that, you know, if I'm rooting, that's the point I, I begin to really kind of engage with people mm-hmm. and really them. And so I think that. I mean, that's it. We all need kind of touch points, I think, that yeah. we can relate to, you know, and in so much of this stuff, there is a huge element of luck or, mm-hmm. um, you know, other things that happen. And I think, you know, if anyone's, one of the things that we wanted to do with the mag was to have something that if people were thinking about kind of, you know, starting their own business or a side project or, or wanted to get into that world, you know, it's, it's this whole idea of kind of demystifying business that is this thing as other. Um, and it's, you know, what can I relate to? What part mm-hmm. of that conversation? Think, oh, yeah, no, I can see how you got from A to B there. You know, it, it's not about having sort of, you know, every opportunity kind of lined up for you to take advantage of. It's that sort of element of, of learning, of learning from your mistakes, of, of trying things out. Um, you know, these are all the kind of human qualities that we can all sort of relate to. Yeah. And you think, well, you know, I, I could do that, actually. You know, it's not such a difficult not necessarily a difficult thing it's not such a different thing um and i think yeah i think that's a kind of really key element of certainly with this sort of story telling that story yeah i mean you know from running the business you know, it, it's never linear it's never a series of hits and successes there are always kind of pitfalls and bits where you kind of trip over things where you get that you get wrong you know um and i think we try and get as we try and reflect that in the way we approach stories you know it's definitely and you know it helps that Fiona and I've ran businesses and and yeah. worked you know so actually you know in addition to us kind of writing kind of covering this stuff we've actually run our own things and so I think um what were your previous businesses or do you still run them as well oh. <laughs> yeah so um um we have an agency called Wordscape which is where we do sort of our mm-hmm. larger work which is yeah. involves publishing <laughs> books and storytelling for business and you know we have a lot of clients in that world mm-hmm. um, yeah. we did filmmaking for that as well mm-hmm. um, and Andrew's had filmmaking businesses in, in the past as well mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. so yeah we, do, we, yeah we still run we run this business together um, but yeah I mean I've run businesses for about well I, yeah getting on for 20 years now and probably for, for 10 I guess yeah um, yeah yeah well that's really interesting I'm actually interviewing a He's a film director at PwC because you know how a lot of these management consultants now are kind of developing their own creative arm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really interesting to hear more about you know storytelling from the film directing angle. You know, but I think you're right. You know, you're talking about how you know vulnerability and um, I guess relatability they're kind of like the core, you know, the core factors that essentially connect humanity in a way. So it's just about making it more grounding and more relatable. Um, no, it's really interesting. So I guess, you know, we, we spoke about, you know, three key ingredients that are needed. So you've said vulnerability, relatability. What was the third one? I don't think we got that far. I don't think we got <laughs> Good pictures. Yeah. 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 Um, I think the thing that makes it kind of relatability, vulnerability. Um, I mean, I think sort of being able to evidence the the success or the change or the difference that you've made you know I think um, a lot of the things that we get sent are from businesses which are just about to start up or have just yeah. started up mm-hmm. and I think the difficulties because we don't cover news the difficulty from a, a storytelling point of view is mm. that it's a great idea but you don't know where that's actually going to go yeah um, and so I think to kind of pull the story full circle you need to understand the success of that I yeah. mean as much as anything because the success or lack of it might lead to a change of direction or you know it's all of the kind of constant tweaks and adjustments yeah. that you make in the business yeah um so i think that there has to be an element of of being able to measure where you're up to and, and knowing your value whether that's a social value or a financial value or a difference that you've created in the world yeah. but um i think you know that sort of you don't want to leave readers with more questions than answers so they kind of need to know how that ended or where it's up to now Um, and that can be for good or for bad but it's still being able to demonstrate a certain you know stage of the journey I guess yeah Yeah. I think yeah we 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 aim we set out to do this and this was the result I think it it is that you know because it speaks to the thing that we were talking about before about sustainability Mm -hmm. you know if 
for us, for us, if we can't answer that question, then it's probably not something we would we would stick in the, mm-hmm. the live stream. I think. And there was always a big element of kind of sharing ideas. One of the things that we wanted to mm-hmm. do was to be able to share ideas and inspiration and that sort of thing. And um, you know, I know a lot of people, especially people that we work with, you know, on a, a sort of local regional level, will read things and they'll be like, "Oh, that's a brilliant idea." You know we can try that, why don't we do that, why don't yeah. we introduce a bit of that, and so I think you need that element of how did that go, you know, what 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 worked and what didn't, mm-hmm. in order to be able to kind of share those ideas. Yeah, yeah, of course, like, I guess having an end to a story in some, in some sense, yeah. you know, that's yeah. interesting, and like, I guess, you know, writing is such a crucial skill for any kind of entrepreneur or anyone starting a new passion project or side hustle, um, and I don't know if you guys listen to Tim Ferriss' podcast at all or mm-hmm. are fans of his work, but I think someone asked him the question that if you had to pick one core skill to, you know, take you further in life, and he said the ability to write and articulate your point of view, he was like, that was the one core skill everyone should learn. So, mm-hmm. you know, for you guys, how would you advise someone who's aspiring to become a better writer, I guess? Um, not necessarily to be a journalist or published or to get published, but you know, just to improve on a personal basis? Um, I would say two things, probably. The first is to read a lot. Yeah. Um, because I think it's only through reading a lot that you understand really how sentences work. And um, mm-hmm. certainly in this country, I think the standard of like English education is not great. Um, but I think through reading a lot, you can really understand what works and what doesn't and how things come together. And I think that has a huge impact. But um, the other thing that I say to everyone, um, and generally everyone ignores me because they think it's stupid, but it's absolutely fundamental, is to read it out loud. Anytime you've written something down, yeah. read it. Um, because most people write horrendous long sentences and they waffle on, and it's really difficult to yeah. read out of them because they'll try and put all of the information into one place. And it's only when you read it that you can, you can hear that. You know, if you can't get to the end of a sentence without running out of breath, and your sentence is far too long, and so that means that somebody else reading it is going to struggle to understand the meaning. Um, so I would always get people to read it out loud and be ruthless, chop it down. You don't have to take out loads of information, but you need to make it concise. Because if it's designed to convey information to somebody else, then, then they'll struggle if you've got lots of long and really sentences. And the other thing is, is write. If someone wants to write, uh, have a go like like it could be you could just write for yourself you know like try and write every day you know if, if it's a few sentences or I mean it depends what people want to write I suppose but mm. um, I think the act of you know I, th- I think all of this stuff in in combination you know kind of reading reading a lot you know I think anyone who we, we work with who we would consider is an exceptionally good writer is really is well read but they also write a lot. They they tend to be reasonably prolific in the in the, the stuff. You know, they 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 exercise that muscle a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um and you know, um so yeah, just have a go yeah. at it. Keep a journal. Interesting. Yeah, no, but that's the thing. I was just gonna say journaling, like I you know, a few years, but I definitely wouldn't have considered myself a writer. And I've actually come from a, a financial background. I was a qualified accountant and then made a transition. And I started reading those and obviously started journaling. And that's how I kind of fell in love with writing, funnily enough. Um, and it is true, like the more you read and write, um, the better you get. Um, and what you said about kind of reading out loud, actually, I recently wrote, I was doing these tone of voice guidelines for a client. And <laughs> I was like talking about the concept of, write as if you were speaking to a crowd you know as if you were speaking out loud and it does it's definitely a good kind of checklist and uh, and way to kind of proofread your stuff you know yeah nice so just a couple of more questions before we move on to um a few kind of personal i guess like more like boldly rapid questions that we ask on all of our uh podcast guests so the second to last one is you know obviously looking at a post-covid world I mean, now at the moment, we're quite unsure when that's going to be, but there is likely to be a new breed of startups, you know, in the next five or 10 years, probably even starting from now. Um, so what, what are your thoughts around this? I mean, I think business, so businesses that come directly out of coronavirus 
are there'll be a lot of kind of service businesses that come out of coronavirus. You know, I think. I mean, again, we kind of looking at the, the the kind of work that we do in Liverpool with community business or socially trading organisations. You know, at the start of the the, the pandemic, you know, I. You know, I think I think of them as first responders. They really were the, the, the quickest to adapt, and the reason they did that is because they they found new ways to serve people, um, to serve their communities. And a lot of those um, businesses will continue doing those things beyond the pandemic because it actually it's things people want. You know, um, there's a I mean, there's a few examples of that. There's a there's a bike courier service that ends up it, it dropped off about several different things that I bought over the, the pandemic, you know, and their businesses, their businesses has, has exploded somewhat. And I think, you know, I, the businesses that I'm looking for, uh, or I'm looking out for at the moment are those that find new and innovative ways to serve people, but also by, by doing that, um, new employment opportunities. So new ways to employ people, you know, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people can ride a bike, you know, and actually, so during a, a, a pandemic, whilst people still need stuff to be delivered to their homes, it's an environmentally savvy way to deliver, but it, it, it potentially also offers opportunities for, mm-hmm. for employment for, for, for people, you know, and because it's not an act, like deliver, deliver potentially meaningful employment, you know, mm-hmm. rather than self-employment. So, I mean, that's it. I think... Um scale won't necessarily be such a thing yeah um i think you know people have thought quite a lot quite hard about where they spend their money and how they want to spend their money mm-hmm. and want to buy things that are kind of local or, or have some sort of meaning for them mm-hmm. so like that kind of model of you know creating something you can easily replicate potentially all over the world um i mean i'm not saying that that's going to go anywhere but i think for a lot of people that certainly won't be as in, as important um because i think they people will want to have like a stronger connection with the things that they spend money on you know they will want to know that they are good employers for instance um they will want to know that they pay their taxes um you know they will want to know that they're environmentally responsible and, and that sort of thing um i mean i think potentially you know one of the things certainly in the uk covid has thrown up lots of questions about um employment and um, self-employment and sort of gig economy employment mm-hmm. you know all of our kind of furlough schemes and everything here have been really attached to that idea of you know what your status is so yeah. potentially you know you'll see a lot more stuff which is kind of community owned um, I mean I've spoken to quite a few businesses in, in the last few days um, about a specific kind of issue that we were seeing as part of COVID and they were sort of you know we, we don't want that big global solution to something that takes 40% of everything that we're trying to do here, because actually that means that we're working for free. You know, we want to try and create something that does a similar thing, but is kind of owned by our community that is more equitable. Um, you know, so I think some, some of that sort of thing, you know, might come to the fore too. Yeah. But it's, you know, as, as Andrew said, I think, you know, being agile and being flexible at the moment is, is mm. vital. Um, I was reading something a couple of weeks ago about being a good generalist. And I think, um, you know, having that ability to kind of, to bend and... Wear many. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, to really kind of flex will be crucial as we come out of this because, you know, this kind of turmoil is, is going to carry on for certainly a, a couple of years, I think, before it really kind of irons out some of the kinks that, that we're going through. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that, I think agile and flexibility, and kind of you know, businesses being well, businesses, whether it's a kind of a one or two people in a community or kind of larger businesses, acting, acting, kind of being kind of opportunist to an extent, and, and really entrepreneurial, and you know, actually kind of um, being adaptable and being able to kind of try things in service of serving people, and I think you know. I think I think whole communities and places doing that as well. You know, like actually, we've, you know, uh, are there more inventive uses of space? And and now, you know, so you know, I think that will present business opportunities. You know, I think we're we're, you know, really, I mean, yeah. I think that's really. I mean, I know um, I'm doing a course in Berlin at the moment, and 
a lot of people always talk about, you know, obviously the idea of Berlin being two different cities and then with re reunification, one of the things that was, there was loads of was space because there was at least two of everything. Mm -hmm. And that led to a stack of really interesting businesses popping up mm -hmm. because people could try things relatively easily. It meant that space wasn't expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and so people could experiment and they could try new things. And I think, you know, one of the things mm -hmm. that might shake out if people stop occupying these enormous city center, you know, mm -hmm. grade, top grade um, office space and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. is that if you have more opportunity to, to take on some space more easily, then you can experiment, you can try something new. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so we might see more of that sort of thing as, as our work habits generally start to change. Yeah, you know, the idea of kind of like, of high street workspaces that are connected into larger city centre workspaces that are in local communities. I think all of that stuff, all of that stuff, I mean, I think all of that stuff was possible anyway, but all of that stuff certainly feels more possible now in in the light of, of, of yeah, COVID. I guess that links you back to kind of, you know, remote working and everything and people being a lot more flexible now. And we're definitely seeing, you know, a, a big rise in the demand of co-working spaces and people just want that flexibility to live a better quality of life too. Awesome. It, it feeds in hugely to things like care and, and our communities and things that weren't possible when you've got these quite sort of regimented days. Exactly. You know, a massive impact in how we live, you know, caring for parents or, you know, people who can't work, caring for kids, um, you know, there are all sorts of, there will be so many unintended consequences of, of all of this madness that we've gone through. And it presents, a, and, and I think all of this stuff, you know, it presents opportunities for people, for entrepreneurs and for, you know, you know um, to see where the challenges are, you know, it's, it's exposed significantly. Yeah challenges in the way our kind of society and it, it you know it's also exposed opportunities where the private sector has retreated you know mm -hmm. the private sector or the or the um local government has retreated because it's had to you know um all of that presents opportunities for for, for people um yeah Thanks for the insight. Um, so I guess my last question just on around, you know, business and work, but which publications do you guys uh, find inspires you the most? And it doesn't have to be a magazine. Um, I mean, I read, there's a couple of mags that I read sort of frequently. And one of them is, um, and they're both UK based. One of them is a magazine called The Simple Things. And it's a kind of almost slow living type thing. Oh yeah. Um, tend to have kind of some nature content and some cooking stuff and some something kind of randomly like, <laughs> like yeah you know collage or, or something but it, I mean it, it's lovely and the thing that I like about it is that when I say it out loud I think well you know I'm not really that interested in in nature type things but it makes me read things that I wouldn't mm -hmm. seek out myself mm. um, and so it's got a really sort of it's got an, a really nice kind of slow, kind of relaxing, calming quality that I, I really like. Um, and from a business point of view, I really like Courier Magazine. I always read Courier Mag. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of them as well. You, I felt like Ethos kind of reminded me of Courier in a weird way, but more obviously the sustainability <laughs> version. So. I mean, that's, they obviously publish much more frequently. I mean, they're, they're really interested in startups. So mm. they get a lot of kind of young um developing up, up and coming businesses but i think you know there's a lot of overlap in terms yeah. of the businesses that mm. they're interested in and the businesses that we're interested in they mm. just tend to to sort of speak to them more in the startup phase and we'll sort of yeah. move out a bit later probably in, into a feature or something but i think yeah i think they, they you know it's full of stacks of stuff which i think sort of really kind of um innovative and, and inspiring yeah um, so yeah I'm, I'm fans of them courier definitely would have been one of mine um <laughs> sorry that's okay <laughs> <laughs> it, well, in fact, in fact yeah. it's, it's still one of mine. I'm sticking with Courier. <laughs> no, so yeah, Courier. And the, I mean, the magazines I subscribe to. Well, the, I've got a copy of Apartamento magazine coming next week or this week, which I'm very excited about. Um, it's lovely. It's nice yeah. pictures, lovely interiors. I don't think I've heard that. What's it called? Yeah, it's, uh, Apartamento magazine. So they're based out of Barcelona, and it's basically they kind of interview people in their home, kind of, um, wow. they tend to be kind of art, uh, kind of culture, creative, 
um, and it, you know, introduce them in their and interview them in their homes and take yeah. nice area photographs. Yeah, yeah. If you like that kind of style, there's it's not a magazine, but there's a, a I guess they're like a media platform called Nowness. If you watch their YouTube series, they you know it's filmed so beautifully. They interview like these amazing grand mansions like in the middle of nowhere, and it's yeah, it's really really nice. Yeah, and I, I love those interviews with people at home. To be yeah. honest. There's a, yeah, there's, an, there's another one I was reading recently, like an apartment. Well, I watched YouTube videos and they were really great. And then the other one, um, just I'm going to throw it in there, is the Scotty Press. So Liverpool is very lucky to have the UK's <laughs> oldest running community newspaper in uh-huh. North Liverpool called Scotty Press. And um, uh, it's great. <laughs> and, and I should caveat that with I'm on the board of the Scotty mm. Press and we worked on the kind <laughs> of but, but it is still nice. <laughs> okay. okay, so just like a couple of more personal questions, I guess. Um, I'm intrigued. This is something that we ask a lot of our um, uh, podcast guests. So, what does each of your what do each of your morning routines look like? Um, so I always I get up at the same time every day, even when it's the weekend. I wake same time which is kind of frustrating that's a good thing you know just sorry to interrupt but i actually listened to a night podcast and it was saying that for those who wake up like say for example you wake up at seven on a weekday and then at 10 on a weekend that's the same effect as flying from san francisco to new york like it's, they call it social jet lag and it's really bad for your body so you're doing the right thing <laughs> these things about how you know it's kind of it's supposed to be really good for you but i you know there's part of me that always thinks I wish I could have just slept for another three hours today. Like, mm-hmm. um, but obviously I don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I mean, I, I run and I like exercising in the morning. So I tend to run. Um, and my lockdown thing was um, there's a friend, kind of mentor, colleague of ours called Mark Shaler. Um, I don't know if you Oh, I know Mark Shaler. Oh, I don't know him. I haven't met him. But I actually attended a webinar with well, my friend. I don't know if you know Catherine Heath. She is the head of social at um, Hug Social, but she's also got a platform called More This, which is uh, featuring all sustainable brands. So I don't know if you would have come across her. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have, I'll send you her link after. But um, yeah, she was on the panel and Mark was there as well. Oh. Yeah, no, he's, I'd say he's done a couple of bits for us for Ethos. Um, and then we worked with him on some business festival stuff that we've been doing. <laughs> Um, but he does a morning Qigong session on Instagram. He said uh, this on the webinar. <laughs> honestly, it's amazing. It's something that, again, I wouldn't have particularly thought of doing had he not said to me, have you done my Qigong yet? And I was like, oh, yes, I am uh, doing your Qigong. <laughs> wait, um, what is Qigong then? Just remind me. I feel like I know what it is, but... like Tai Chi. It comes, it's a sort of traditional Chinese holistic approach to <laughs> the whole body and how different parts of your body relate to kind of different elements so like fire and water and wood and right, right. um and um so he does a session on instagram um and he's done it you know he always says i'm not a qigong teacher i'm just somebody Hello. standing in the back garden and i've turned the camera on and he hits audiences of sort of like 80 90 people and it's become a really nice community but you know, you do, it move, you move your whole body. Um, it's a good kind of sort of stretch um, first thing in the morning. So that's sort of those are the two things that I do before I do, you know, breakfast and checking emails and things like that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I would totally the person who said that's part of your morning routine. <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I've I've just moved house, so my morning routine's been thrown off in the air somewhat, and. I mean, the two things I do of a, of a morning, typically, I listen to uh, some podcasts. So I always kind of, I spend the morning with podcasts or, uh, or music on, oftenly. Uh, the minute I get out of bed, I'll tend to switch one on. And then that's me. Yeah, I'm the same. Um, and then I, I always journal of a morning. So I, I yeah. typically of a, of a morning. But I've, I've also got a four and a half, well, nearly five-year-old at home. So... My morning routine is whatever he wants his morning routine. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And, and the time is is when he gets up out of bed. So that, that, yeah. uh, yesterday morning, that was half five in the morning. 
He went to yeah. into blueberries and muesli at half five yesterday morning. So oh, you're doing too well, then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, early rise, blueberries, muesli. Yeah. I'm with Mark Taylor. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. okay. So. Journal is something I've yeah I don't know that's all that's been a consistent for me for. Uh, you do it every day. Yeah. yeah. Other morning, other night. Yeah. Do you have like a specific, do you just kind of brain dump um, or do you have a specific format to journal? No, I pretty much just, it, it, it um, so I'd like, I, I, t I typically write about what I've got coming up ahead of me in the, in the, the day, just cause it, you know, it's, um, and then of a, of an evening, I'll just brain dump mm. what's happened in the, the day and stuff that's, yeah. Stuff that I'm thinking about, stuff that's on my mind, stuff I'm finding. I, like I, t I, I don't tend to. It's pretty unstructured, to be to be perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. I think your morning routine. I think mine sounds more like Andrew's. Mine is the five-year-old. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, final question: What is one book you'd recommend to a friend? This is the question that we both went. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah, everyone hates me for it. I could literally give you probably every half an hour, I'd give you a different answer, let alone like a different book every day. Um, the, the book that I give, so the, the book that I've bought most often in the past six years, and I can't say it's the, my favourite book, but I keep giving copies of it away. And so, um, is the, a book about um, uh, advertising guy in the 1960s, mm -hmm. 70s, Howard Gossard, called Changing the World is the Only Fit Work for a Grown Man. Um, and he was a um, really interesting guy. I mean, it, it, his office sounded completely amazing. He, he had a, an old firehouse in San Francisco. Um, but he did a lot of kind of really early advocacy advertising. So he worked with Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth and you know Ken Kesey and his lot used to hang out in the firehouse and John Steinbeck would come in and Right. And do stuff. So it's a, it's a, I mean, it, it, it's both an interesting story, but also his approach to kind of interactive advertising and kind of storytelling. And, and he liked to build a lot. So he, he would sometimes write an advert in one issue of the New Yorker and then finish it and not finish it and then just pick it up in the next issue in the next advert. And so um, I think um, I enjoy reading that. But I, yeah, I also enjoy giving that to. To people. What was that called again? You said the title. Uh, uh, ch uh, changing the world is the only fit work for a grown man. Okay, got it. Um, and so that's made me think about books I actually have given. So one of my friends was pregnant basically through lockdown, and she's like, "Oh, what can I read?" Like literally, I'm quite, you know, she was she was on her own, she's kind of climbing the walls. Um, so I absolutely love um, the Tales of the City series. Um, and wrote a bit of a blog about them, actually, something that we were doing from work. So sort of set in, the, in San Francisco, sort of tracing from um, the late, late 1960s um, mm. until now. So there's, I mean, is it cheating for me to say a series of, of eight books are, are my favorite, but it's, it's that um, Armistead uh, Morpin um, series that is probably, probably my favorite series of books. Oh, interesting. Both kind of based in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah, that might, I wonder if that's what made me think it. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, you know, there's a lovely warmth to them. Um, you know, it's all about kind of, you know, coming out and discovering a new city and um, it takes you through the AIDS era and AIDS pandemic and stuff. Um, but it's this idea of um, logical family because it's all people moving to a city. And it's that idea of choosing to be a part of something yeah. as opposed to your kind of, you know, your, your birth family, your blood family. It's that family that you create around you. Yeah. Um, I really like, because I live in a city that I wasn't born in and my yeah. family live a long way away. So I really like that idea of, you know, you create your own family. So versus nurture. Like, where are you from originally in the UK? So I was, I was born just outside London. I was born in Kent. Um, but we moved around a lot um, as a, when I was a kid. So we lived overseas, lived in Hong Kong and lived in Belgium and moved. Oh, I'm originally from Hong Kong, well, my parents are, but yeah. I've both never lived there. <laughs> yeah, um, I was there, I think, from when I was about two and, two and a half to four and a half. So a long, long time ago. Um, 
but yeah, I, so Liverpool is my kind of longest standing um, relationship. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, not when my family are. Sure, Doctor Get the access to. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for sharing your stories. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure to hear you know both your your journeys and hearing more about you know you having other businesses as well. So, and I'm sure um, our our um, listeners will be really intrigued to hear more about Ethos and I'll put all the um, links to the website and your socials in our in the links of the podcast um, and if people want to listen to the transcription they can refer to the website at anotherstartupstory.com but this has been really really great advice it's been a pleasure speaking to you both and yeah thanks so much again for being on the show thank, thank you, you. No, I enjoyed it it's, yeah a really interesting conversation yeah thanks for having thanks. us <laughs>